Hey guys, Rachel here. I wanted to give you a little heads up before we jump into this week's episode. Unlike prior weeks, we got to record this episode on location at, of all places, a milkshake shop. So just give us a little bit of grace since the sound quality is not the best, but know that we had so much fun recording it, knowing that we had milkshakes waiting for us in the freezer that was only like six feet away. All right, guys, now let's jump into this week's episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And this is Hashtag History, the podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike, where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. All right, you guys, this is Hashtag History, episode 10. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And Leah, can you believe we're already on episode 10? I can't believe we made it past episode one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you tuned into last week's episode, you know this is our last episode of season one. And if you tuned into last week's episode, you also know that we have a super special guest on the show this week. We have Kelly Boyles, the owner of Milk House Shakes in Old Sacramento. I want Kelly to share her story about her shop, but before I do, I just want to preface it with this, guys. It is a milkshake shop that is presidential-themed, as in all of the milkshakes are named and based off of the presidents. Well, hi. Thanks for having me. I am, like, super excited to be on. Very nervous. Um, But, yeah, I have a milkshake shop here in Sacramento called Milk House Shakes, and it's kind of a play on the White House, um, because all the shakes are named after U.S. presidents because I wanted to be a history teacher. So it's meant to be just fun, you know, like our Carter shape peanut butter because he's a peanut farmer. So it's just meant to be kind of fun, quirky. That was my favorite one, the Carter. I think I've gotten it every time I've come. I've meant to try one of the other ones, and yet I've gotten the Carter every single time. The Carter is a good one. My favorite's the um, Roosevelt's coffee. Yeah. So you need a little caffeine boost. I love it. Now, we intentionally had Kelly on this particular episode because, as I understand it, Kelly is obsessed with the Teapot Dome scandal. Literally obsessed. (laughs) I remember I was in college and I had to go back. I was in a sorority and we had to go back early for recruitment, which sounds weird if you weren't in one because you'd practice for two weeks to recruit people. Anyway, and there's nobody on campus. I was like, well, I'm going to buy a book because, you know, I need some downtime. And I picked up this book called The Teapot Dome Scandal by Leighton McCartney. And I, like, knocked it down. It was life-changing. And I remember that year as a history major, and we had to write a paper on something. So I chose The Teapot Dome Scandal. And during sort of recruitment, we have to have, like, conversations with all these potential people. They don't know you. You don't really know them. You're trying to impress them. Yes. I literally You impress them with The Teapot Dome. I don't think one of those girls were in the house. So all I talked about was, oh, my gosh, have you heard about The Teapot Dome Scandal? Let me tell you. And, like, I would... <laughs> That is awesome. I love that. And that that's one of the reasons I'm really excited to be covering this topic because the Teapot Dome scandal, it is such an underrated event in American history. And it's all about controversy, conspiracy and corruption, which I mean, if you've listened to our intro, that's literally what we do here on Hashtag History. 
Prior to the Watergate scandal during Nixon's administration, the Teapot Dome scandal was the first major scandal to occur in the highest office of the land. It occurred during President Warren G. Harding's administration. This scandal involved secret bribing that occurred at the hands of Harding's very own cabinet, particularly a man by the name of Albert B. Fall, who ended up profiting from the scandal by more than $400,000, all before getting caught and going to jail. Although it is still up for debate just how much involvement Harding himself actually had in the Teapot Dome scandal, it can be said without a doubt that Harding was no angel. And although Harding would never serve time behind bars for his crimes, he did end up paying for them with his life. And of course, it is now time for Leah's cocktail segment. So because the scandal took place in the Prohibition era, I thought it would be fun to drink a Prohibition era cocktail, which sounds counterintuitive, um, that came to be around the same time as the scandal. So this week we are drinking the Mary Pickford cocktail. Yeah, sounds sweet. Um, (laughs) It is one and a half ounces of white rum, one and a half ounces of pineapple juice, a teaspoon of grenadine, six drops of maraschino liqueur, which was that hard to find? Yes. Um, there was a $30 option and there was the knockoff that was $3. We're drinking the $3 stuff, guys. <laughs> um, it's fine. That's, uh, that sounds like my type of drink. Okay. Um, so this drink was named for the Canadian-American film actress Mary Pickford. It is said to have been created for her in the 1920s at the Hotel Nacional de Cuba on a trip that she took to Havana with Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks. That made me want to Havana unana when he said that. That's all I can think of. <laughs> all right, dork. Um, fun fact, if not somewhat hypocritical, um, we all probably maybe know that Prohibition took place um, from 1920 to 1933 during Warren G. Harding's presidency. So despite the fact that Harding did very much support the 18th Amendment, which prohibited the sale and transportation of alcohol, he for sure did not let this stop him from enjoying a prohibited beverage or two or three. Um, one White House employee confirmed that she oftentimes saw Harding and his buddies drinking scotch with soda in the Oval Office, which seems wildly inappropriate in itself, not even considering the hypocrisy. But I know, I know, it was a different time. So with that, cheers, guys. Let me know what you think. Cheers. We're drinking out of red Solo cups today. <laughs> <laughs> Like a seven out of ten? That's a little high for me. I really like pineapple juice a lot. Maybe maybe I want more pineapple juice. Pineapple is kind of my thing. What do you think? Um, I feel like it's one of those like dangerous drinks because you cannot taste the alcohol. Agreed. So it's kind of sweet and Agreed. Like, oh, well, I'll drink some more. <laughs> yeah. I don't, and then before you know it, it's too late. I'll have a cold red soda. Yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thank but you. not bad, not bad. Yeah, I like it, and I'll definitely be drinking it throughout. So let's dive right into the scandal by starting at the very beginning with who the heck was Warren G. Harding? 
I think for nerds like myself and definitely nerds like Kelly, who literally owns a milkshake coffee shop with drinks named after the presidents, we are definitely familiar with the United States as 29th president. But for those that aren't, let's do some background. Just a heads up that I'm going to be doing a lot of the verbal vomiting while laying the foundation about who Harding was, but Kelly will have lots to share later as we get into the actual scandal. Similar to when we were discussing Andrew Jackson in episodes 7 and 8, I feel like you can't just start at Warren G. Harding's presidency. There is so much about his early childhood and his young adult life that made him the president that he one day became. So let's start on November 2nd, 1865, when baby Warren was born. Kelly, I know it goes without question that you know of another very significant event that happened earlier that year in 1865. Still sad about it. Still sad about it, guys. We're referring to Lincoln's assassination. Um, Yeah, that was too soon. (laughs) Too soon. Yeah, so what a year to be born. But yes, Harding was born in 1865 in Blooming Grove, Ohio, the oldest of eight siblings. And to call this guy a homebody would be an understatement. His family lived in Blooming Grove until Harding's last year in college when they moved to Marion, Ohio. Once Harding completed his final year of school, he too moved to Marion with his family. He stayed in Ohio the majority of his young life, and there are even some quotes from him at the time talking about people that had left Ohio and found success elsewhere, almost like with a sense of disdain. But then again, who am I to talk? I have literally lived within the same 20-mile radius for the last 27 years and don't plan on moving ever. Anyway, Harding, aside from being a 100% homebody, he was also a pretty smart and ambitious guy. When he was only 11 years old, his dad bought out a local newspaper, and that's where Harding learned all the ins and outs of the newspaper business, using this knowledge to both put out a paper with a buddy of his while they were in college, and also to later buy out a family newspaper at the time, the Marion Star, when he was only 18 years old. Harding completely flipped the newspaper around, making it a super successful business, In order to flip this paper into a successful one, though, I think we can see here examples of the beginnings of Harding's corrupt nature. Biographer Andrew Sinclair is quoted with saying about Harding's time at the paper that he started with nothing and through working, stalling, bluffing, withholding payments, borrowing back wages, boasting, and manipulating, he was able to turn a failing newspaper into a successful business. In fact, Harding continued to be financially invested in the Marion Star all the way up until two months before his death. It's also said that his good looks helped him to become as successful as he was. Leah, I've uploaded a picture of Harding from 1882 for you to look at and tell us what you think of these stunningly good looks. This picture would have been taken when Harding was about 17 years old. Wait, this one? He was 17? Yeah. Because I was going to say that's a 40-year-old man. (laughs) No, nope. He's still a minor. Okay. He aged well, though, actually. He's (laughs) an older photo. Oh, he's an attractive, like... Yeah. Yeah, I I don't actually have um, one of his older photos pulled up, but it looks just like this. Keep in mind, the eyebrows stay the exact same color, but the hair on top of his head turns white. Yeah. No. But he's, like, for an older man, you're like, 
would have guessed that that was a 35 to 40 year old man in that picture but good looking regardless 17 you have the hots for a 17 year old right there it was these looks that also (laughs) it was these looks that also helped harding swoon the future mrs harding florence king cling wow let me do that again florence cling Florence was five years Harding senior and actually had a 10-year-old son when she met Harding from a previous marriage that had ended pretty shortly after it began. Little side note, but something that is really interesting to me is that Florence's first marriage was actually printed in the Marion Star 10 years before she and Harding ever met. This would have been published right around the time that Harding took over the paper, so it's possible he was even responsible for its publication. So that's super interesting. Florence was a very smart, but also very hard-headed woman who came from a very wealthy family. Her father, Amos Kling, a developer, he was actually extremely against the marriage of Florence to Harding. One, because he believed Harding was just social climbing. And two, because Harding's paper constantly talked mess about him. It's not a good way to warm up to your future father-in-law. Florence went against her father's wishes and married Harding in 1891. Florence was, as I have already mentioned, extremely hard-headed and actually later credited herself as being the reason that Warren G. Harding made it to the White House. In fact, she is quoted as saying that Harding does well when he listens to me and poorly when he does not. (laughs) Sounds like me and my husband. (laughs) In fact... Harding was actually hospitalized five times between the years of 1889 and 1901 for various health reasons, such as fatigue and stress, and Florence stepped up every single time to completely run the paper on his behalf while he was out of commission. Too bad having a woman like that didn't mean anything for Harding, remaining faithful to her. In fact, Harding was involved in two very infamous affairs while he was married to Florence, We will dive deeper into detail about each of those affairs later, but I'll give a tiny sneak peek here. One affair was with Carrie Phillips, who was the wife of a department store owner and was also a good friend of Harding's back in Marion, Ohio. This affair began in 1905, so a little over a decade into his marriage with Florence, and it lasted for more than 15 years. How the affair ended exactly, we will discuss later. As for the second extramarital affair, Harding became involved with a woman, or maybe I should call her a child, because he became involved with a woman 30 years his junior, right around the time that he was becoming a big name in Marion, Ohio, because of the newspaper, and was beginning to campaign for the presidency. Her name was Nan Britton, and she is going to become super important later. For now, though, let's return to Harding's wife, Florence. Leah, I've uploaded a picture of Florence for you to look at. Now, this picture was taken much later than the time period that we are currently talking about. This picture was taken approximately 20 years later when Harding and Florence were already in the White House. But I chose this particular picture for a reason. When this picture was taken for a newspaper article, Florence announced to the photographer that it was the best picture she had ever seen of herself. Stop with the face. (laughs) I'm just, I'm making a strange face because it's literally captioned in the newspaper clipping, her finest picture. 
She captioned it. Wow. Yeah, her finest picture. She really felt that way. I mean, she, her skin does look pretty nice. Look at this. <laughs> that highlighter's on point. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, but she, again, looks like a boss lady. Um, how old did you say she was in this picture? Uh, she would have been, let me think. Uh, she would have been in her 40s. Okay. She looks good for her age, I would say. And she, yeah, it's her finest picture. That's all I have to say about it. I think that that's really cute because I know we all have that one picture we love of ourselves that makes us feel fabulous. Even if it makes like zero sense, like this is my favorite picture of myself. So true. (laughs) And people usually think, Really? Yeah. Oh, you have other ones. I like this one. One person, it's always your mom, too. Your mom's like, that one? Yes, or your grandma. Yeah, or your grandma. But you look so cute when you actually brush your hair. But I like the one like that, Mom. It's right around this time that Harding became involved in politics. In 1898, he won the election to become a senator for Ohio, where he served until 1903. He served briefly as Ohio's lieutenant governor, before once again winning the Senate election in 1914. There truthfully are not many exciting things to say about his time in the Senate. Harding was a pretty middle ground person who did not have major opinions nor take big stances on issues. He was actually well liked for this. Never forget though what we talked about earlier in relation to Harding's corrupt nature. While he was an Ohio senator, he arranged for his blind sister to become a teacher at a prominent school for the blind, even though there were many other applicants that were much more qualified. He also arranged for publicity in the Marion Star in exchange for free railroad passes for himself and his family. Now, let's fast forward to the presidency so that we can finally get to the actual scandal. This was the election of 1920. There were many candidates up for the ticket alongside Harding, one of which may sound extra familiar to you Sacramento locals, California Senator Hiram Johnson. I did plays at Hiram Johnson growing up. Oh, it's a high school. (laughs) For those that don't know, um, Hiram Johnson, it's a huge high school here in Sacramento, and I um, also danced at Hiram Johnson. They have a really good theater. Their theater's huge. My favorite thing about Hiram Johnson, have you been to Hiram? I think I took my ACTs there. Really? Have you been in the, like, auditorium area? It's The coolest part about um, Hiram Johnson to me was, like, so the stage is huge. The wings are huge. The wings are, like, the size of the stage. So my studio that I was dancing at, um, it was a studio in West Sacramento. We had, like, 500 students. And the last number, you know, the finale, you have, like, everyone go out. You could line up every student, like, in the wings to waiting to go on the stage. Yeah, I loved performing there. Sorry, why are we still talking about performing at Hiram Johnson High School? But, um, <laughs> and here's another story. Here's another story. <laughs> Just talking about the big wings is they, um, we had huge props, like stage width props that we just pushed off in the wings. They were so big. I don't understand why all stages are not made that way. It's brilliant. Okay, so now we're done with that. Um, anyway, similar to when Harding was an Ohio senator, Many people liked that he was very even-keeled and didn't necessarily take a stance on anything. He ran on a campaign of a return to normalcy, and many Americans were more than ready for that, having just begun the recovery from the First World War. Even still, many believed Harding to be the least qualified of all candidates. 
In fact, one thing that irritated people more than any other was the fact that Harding, like I mentioned earlier, never really took a stance on anything and rather just circled and circled around thoughts and theories instead. Leah, I've uploaded a quote from a journalist at the time. His name was H.L. Mencken about how he really felt about Harding. Oh my gosh, I just read the first line and it's cracking me up. Okay. It reminds me of a string of wet sponges. <laughs> it reminds me of tattered washing on the line. It reminds me of stale bean soup, of college yells, of dogs barking idiotically through endless nights. This is so harsh. Um, it is so bad that a kind of grandeur creeps into it. It drags itself out of the dark ab- ab- abysm. Abysm? Yeah. Okay. The dark abysm of pish and crawls insanely up the topmost pinnacle of tosh. It is rumble and bumble. It is balder and dash. (laughs) He didn't like him. I don't think so. A lot of people actually felt that way about Harding because he never took a stance on anything. Kelly and I have talked about this, about becoming history majors. Like you can talk and talk. And look like you know what you're talking about. But truthfully, you've just circled around the exact same thing 75 times. 100%. But with different words. Oh my gosh, Jelly. Just <laughs> change the ending, a little flourish here. And it's like the same thing. And that was Harding, his speeches. So some people liked him for it. Obviously, H.L. Mencken hated him for it. Right. The selection of Harding as the Republican nominee was ultimately the result of a compromise The Republican Party couldn't decide on a nominee and ended up choosing Harding, the guy that never had an opinion about anything, as the safest bet. And nevertheless, Harding won the presidency with Calvin Coolidge as his vice president. In fact, the election of 1920 scored the most Republican votes since the official split of the two parties. Leah, check out the picture of the 1920 vote results. I've never seen California as a red state before, but there it is. Yeah, one of our lifetimes. Yeah, so it's um mostly red, I would say, which is it's the exact opposite of how you might picture things today, where blue is like the southern states, like there's Texas and Florida and whatnot, and then red is a lot of the more northern states. And I would say that's good now. Agreed. It it is pretty crazy. Um, Republicans won 60% of the electoral vote that year. Just before Harding was elected president, leaders of the GOP learned of a certain Mrs. Phillips. Remember us talking about her not too long ago? The woman he had an affair with that lasted nearly 15 years? When GOP leaders learned about this affair, they demanded that Harding end it immediately. Carrie had some pretty raunchy love letters between herself and Harding that we will not be reading on here because um, PG-13. <laughs> Have you read them? Yes. <laughs> um, we will not be reading on here, although I totally encourage you to check them out for yourself. <laughs> I do. Please read Harding's dirty text messages. <laughs> Seriously. It's kind of funny though that today, like, that's so, like, a politician, like, sending a dirty text is like, all right, what a cold news. Like, that's not yeah. even scandalous anymore. Unless you're Anthony Weiner. Well, <laughs> that's an unfortunate name. It's an unfortunate name. <laughs> he was, like, destined to be a scandalous politician with a name like that. 
Anyway, I do really encourage you guys to go check them out because they are really, really interesting and they're really intense. When you um, check them out, make sure your mom is not peeking over your shoulder. (laughs) But Carrie, she threatened to release these letters to the media if Harding didn't pay up. And so he did. Along with the Republican Party, Harding paid Carrie and her husband approximately $20,000 in hush money, which would be the equivalent of about $250,000 today. And thus, here we are, Mr. Harding is in office. Harding quickly filled his cabinet with, well, his buddies. Harding wasn't a very qualified candidate for the presidency. He had been a newspaper owner, remember? Therefore, he didn't really have a ton of connections in the political world. His cabinet became known as the Ohio Gang because many of them were just buddies of his from back home. The most corrupt and most important to our story was a man by the name of Albert B. Fall, whom Harding brought in as Secretary of the Interior. And like Fall, I mean, there's so much you can go into about him, but just a kind of like a brief um, synopsis. He was born in 1861 in Kentucky, and he was a senator from New Mexico, He was elected in 1912, Um, and there's a lot about he did not get along with um, Wilson at all, President Wilson, but was very close with Harding, both professionally and socially, and he was fiercely loyal to his state of New Mexico, Um, which you think of, I always think of back to like uh, revolutionary period and even the Civil War period, you're more loyal to your state and to your country, and that was definitely um, fall, and um, his home, he built Three Rivers Ranch, and one day he wanted to give it to his son. But sadly, his son and one of his daughters died in the Spanish flu epidemic. Um, and so he couldn't really keep up with the ranch. And that would ultimately, as you'll find out, uh, lead to his downfall and kind of be the crux of the scandal. That's really sad. Talking about a corrupt human being, and then you have a little heart for him for half a second. It, I mean, I don't think, you know. We, We're all human. If we, yeah. And there's, there's worse things in the world than to take a bribe. But he's, you know, he's shady still. But yeah. <laughs> he's still shady. He can be shady and still be like, oh. Oh, still have some heart. I'd be a terrible cop. I mean, yeah, just- <laughs> I always say that about, um, like, being on a jury trial and stuff. Like, like, you actually don't understand. I can quite literally see, like, 50-50, one side versus the other side of almost any situation. With the exception of, of course, like, your most heinous crimes. But, like... Yeah, I can see a bribe. <laughs> well, I don't also see, like, well, you know, is he sorry? And, like, oh, you know, it's yeah. for a good reason. You know, yeah. Like, totally can justify. But he was shady. I, I want that on the record. I do think he was shady. <laughs> but. Now let's get into a little bit of history about the oil industry at the time before we dive into the actual scandal. So, woohoo, the oil industry. I know it sounds really, really exciting. We'll keep it short. By this time, the majority of the fuel used by the U.S. Navy had been converted from coal to oil. It was, of course, super important that the Navy always had enough available fuel. So in order to make that happen, naval oil reserves, they were designated by 27th President William Taft, with the department in control of these reserves being the Navy Department. Okay, then in 1921, Fall presents Warren G. Harding with an executive order that Harding then signed, transferring the control of the oil reserves in Teapot Dome, Wyoming, to Harry Sinclair of Sinclair Oil Corporations, and the ones in Elk Hills and Buena Vista oil fields, 
in California to Edward Doheny of Pam American Petroleum and Transport Company from the Navy Department over to the Department of the Interior. And yeah, to touch on that, the um, the General Leasing Act of 1920 just reinforced the control of the Secretary of the Interior um, over the oil reserves, even though they were still designed specifically for naval use. And as we dive more into the scandal, it's important to note that the leasing of these oil fields would have been legal um, to lease out to anyone if it was private, but they were leased without competitive bidding. Exactly. Now, I feel like one of the biggest questions about this scandal is how the hell it got its name. Teapot Dome, it refers to the location where the oil reserve was located in Teapot or in Teapot, in Teapot Dome, Wyoming. Leah, I've uploaded a picture of Teapot Dome for you to look at. I was actually going to ask how it got its name. So. I, I think that's the like biggest question. Yes. So it is a rock formation in, I'm assuming, Wyoming. Um, and I'm guessing people think it looks like a teapot. <laughs> it's got a little spout coming out of it. And also in question, along with these, um, the teapot dome was the Salt Creek Field, which was at the time controlled by the government and one of the richest um, oil fields in the world. So like Kelly said, it wasn't the actual leasing of these oil reserves that was illegal. Rather, it was the fact that this had been done without a public announcement nor a competitive bidding process. I'll give a little bit of personal background here. When I was working for the city of Sacramento, my office was responsible for holding the bid opening in the council chambers every week. The bid opening, it's basically a public hearing in which you read off all the projects up for bid at the time and all of the different contractors that bid on that project. You have to read the exact amount of each bid down to the decimal, and it's absolutely imperative that you advertise the bid for the project in the time frame that is mandated by law. If you do not do this, you are doing something illegal. So just think about that when you hear that the leasing of these oil reserves was conducted secretly without the competitive bidding process. By leasing these oil reserves to specific companies, these companies obviously became insanely profitable, which then in turn made Fall filthy rich. Like I teased at the beginning of the episode, Fall ended up receiving over $400,000 in gifts from the oil companies in exchange for his favor. This would be the equivalent of nearly $6 million today. So even prior to his position as Secretary of the Interior, uh, Fall was experiencing financial problems, and he turned to his friend, Edward Doheny, who was one of the wealthiest oil men in the country. Okay, um, actually, a little backstory on Doheny in a second. Um, but also, too, to note, Fall and Doheny, a lot of speculation about the Teapot Dome also goes back to like the Mexican Revolution and protecting um, oil rights here in the States, which was really big for Doheny because he was in Southern California, and um, so they just had a close connection. Anyway, so disguised as a loan as a close friend, Doheny gave Fall $100,000 in cash in exchange for drilling rights for oil deposits in Elk Hills, California. And at the same time, Harry Sinclair, who was kind of Doheny's Midwest counterpart, um, like, you know, an insanely wealthy oil tycoon, uh, was looking to expand his mammoth oil company and agreed to take part ownership of Falls Three River Ranch um, in order to keep it afloat in exchange for drilling access to the oil reserves in Wyoming. So a little backstory on Doheny. Um, he was an oil tycoon west of the West, California, and owned the first free-flowing oil well in L.A. And he is credited with triggering the Southern California 
Oil Boom. And, kind of a fun fact, um, the main character in Upton Sinclair's book, Oil, which I have tried to read three times, and <laughs> always put it down, but I always want to read, like, it's on my list, I'm going to, it's just one of those things you start reading and you stop. It's like Lonesome Dove, I'm reading it right now, and I'm like, oh, I'll come back to it. Anyway, it is said that uh, Doheny, the main character in the book, is loosely based on Doheny. That's and cool. Personally, I'm fascinated with it because um, on USC's campus, we have a library called Doheny Library, which is named for um, Doheny's son, Ned, who gets caught up in the scandal as well, and we'll be talking more about later. Yes, we will. Suspicion arose not only because of the fancy lifestyle that Fall began to live, but also because oil men from the Wyoming area noticed trucks with the logos of the oil companies Fall was leasing the reserves to, driving back and forth to Teapot Dome. An article was written about this in the Wall Street Journal on April 14, 1922, and by the next day, Wyoming Democratic Senator John Kendrick was calling for an investigation into what was going on. Um, so initially, there was not much evidence against Fall that depicted an unjust transaction between he and Sinclair and Doheny. So the investigation shifted to the improvements that were made on Fall's Three Rivers Ranch. And Fall's crucial mistake was that he lied to the jury, claiming he did not accept any money from Doheny or Sinclair while he was Secretary of the Interior, which is false. Um, but it's weird to know that Fall and Sinclair were both eventually indicted and given prison sentences. But Doheny, however, was never convicted um, because it kind of came down to him claiming that the money he gave Fall was a personal loan and not to gain access to these rights. Fall's arrest actually made him the very first U.S. cabinet member to ever be imprisoned. There is evidence that, at this time, Fall was also in trouble with another oil man, James Darden, who claimed that he should have had first rights to the Teapot Dome site and not Sinclair. See, guys, this is what happens when you do not have a public competitive bidding process. The Denver Post picked up this story, and just as they were beginning to air all the dirty laundry, there's evidence that Harding actually convinced Sinclair to pay off the Post and, Dar and Darden in order to escape more media scrutiny. Now, just how involved Harding was in the Teapot Dome scandal is still a question today. Many believe it was all Fall's doing and that Harding simply signed the executive order in front of him without really looking at it. To me, as president, you better be reading and rereading every damn executive order you sign. If that is the only evidence we ever have against Harding, it's enough for me. But there is actually other evidence that Harding benefited from the money that came from the scandal. For one, Harding received an offer that was extremely high to buy out the Marion Star. This arrangement is believed to have been made by Sinclair himself. Harding's wife, Florence, may have also benefited from the money that came from the scandal. There's evidence that she was going around telling all her friends about an all-expenses-paid year-long cruise that the Hardings planned to take, along with 50 or so of their friends, once Harding's presidential term was over. Does it come as a shock to anyone that this cruise was to take place on Sinclair's luxury yacht? Yeah, I didn't think so. The Hardings would never take this cruise, though, because on August 2nd, 1923, just two years into his presidency, Harding died suddenly. At the time, it was said that he had a stroke, but nowadays I think most people believe he died of a heart attack. 
I personally believe he died from the stress and the weight of the corruption of his administration. But there will always be conspiracy theorists, some of whom claim that Florence was actually responsible for his death, maybe by way of poisoning. Perhaps she had found out about the extramarital affairs. Perhaps she had found out about the corruption and knew the ways in which it was going to cast a dark mark over her life. It is interesting that Florence refused to let doctors conduct an autopsy, although they really wanted to. And she demanded that her husband be embalmed immediately. Hey, speaking of those extramarital affairs, so remember Nan Britton that we mentioned very briefly earlier, the baby (laughs) that Harding became involved with. So here's the story. Nan was a little schoolgirl from Marion, Ohio, with a crush on the guy that had become a celebrity by way of his work on the newspaper, his time in the Senate, and then as president. She bragged to Harding while he was campaigning for the presidency that she had pictures of him all over her bedroom wall. Harding took full advantage of this. Oh, and he also took her virginity. Harding and Nan were involved in a five-year-long affair that lasted throughout his time in the White House. In fact, many of their encounters occurred in a White House closet, which is really super romantic, guys. It's really gross. (laughs) Nan had a daughter in 1919 that she claimed was Harding's. In fact, she continued to claim this until her death in 1991 and suffered being vilified by all of her haters who said she was just out for money. In 2015, so 24 years after her death, Ancestry.com was able to 100% verify that Nan's daughter was indeed Warren G. Harding's offspring. And then Nan, uh, Nan and Harding's daughter, she died in 2005. There is one other scandal I want to talk about that was potentially a result of the Teapot Dome scandal. This tragedy is known as the Greystone murder-suicide. To set some very quick context, this fatal incident occurred at the Greystone Mansion, which was purchased by the city of Beverly Hills in 1971 and has since become the set of more than 50 movies or shows, including Gilmore Girls, X-Men, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, The Holiday, What Women Want, and so many more. Now you're talking my language. (laughs) So why are we talking about this? Remember Kelly briefly mentioned earlier that we were going to be talking more about dead, Ned, dead. (laughs) (laughs) Very telling. Foretelling guys, foreshadowing. (laughs) Remember Kelly briefly mentioned earlier, Ned Doheny, Edward Doheny's son. Well, with all that money that Edward Doheny had from the oil industry, he had this elaborate mansion built as a gift for his son. But only five months after moving into the mansion, tragedy struck. There are a million different accounts as to what exactly happened that night. But what we do know is that Ned and his buddy, Hugh Plunkett, were hanging out. Hugh. That's a really unfortunate name. (laughs) Plunkett. I I knew you were going to say something about Plunkett. Hugh had his own key to the place and he let himself in. And Ned's wife, Lucy, she says that she heard a single gunshot go off. She goes racing to find out what happened when she sees Hugh walking around holding a gun. Hugh disappeared into a bedroom and then Lucy heard another gunshot. When she went into the room, she found both Hugh and her husband, Ned, 
dead from gunshot wounds to the head. Again, why am I even talking about this? It's because there is significant evidence that perhaps this murder-suicide was committed in response to the Teapot Dome scandal. Right at the time of their deaths in 1929, the Senate committee had Doheny Sr. on trial for his involvement in the scandal. Doheny Jr. and Hugh were both implicated in the scandal as well. So it's possible that Doheny Jr. and Hugh Plunkett took their own lives in response to the growing tension and to avoid being called before the Senate committee to testify and possibly facing some criminal repercussions repercussions themselves. Oh yeah, and now this mention is used as a Hollywood movie set? So there's that. Leah, you know I couldn't leave out a good murder mystery story. So what is up with Teapot Dome today? In 1927, all production was halted at the site following the investigations. Fast forward all the way to January of 2015, the Teapot Dome site was finally sold by the U.S. Department of Energy by way of, take a guess, a competitive bidding process. It was sold to the Standard Oil Resources Corporation for $45.2 million. That is crazy. Um, And I think it's important to note that the Teapot Dome scandal is often just a tiny paragraph in a textbook. Uh, I know most people I've talked to about it, honestly, I'm the only one that knows about it in my friend group. Uh, I mean, now (laughs) they all do, but most people don't really know about it. But it's important because at the time it was so huge. And for the American people, this is really the first time we see the corruption of politics play out on a national stage. That's not to say that scandal hasn't been in politics since forever. But we see newspapers and, um, you know, in the early 1900s, the sensational journalism. I think that really fueled and contributed to the mystery surrounding the scandal. And the first year the story broke, which was in 1922, I think we said, um, the Wall Street Journal covered it 87 times. That's crazy. I mean, that's huge. It was was big news for the time. And it was complex. It was more than just taking a loan uh, for greed and power. Uh, Some historians link the Teapot Dome scandal, I think I mentioned earlier, to the Mexican Revolution and the need to protect our oil in Mexico. Um, And we also have Fall at the time as well was looking to expand oil in the U.S. and even drill on Native American lands. And don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure that there was something signed to where, like, executively signed to where he was able to lease um, oil fields on Native American lands and the Native Americans would not get a penny. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. There's so many arms to the story. And sadly, you know, one of the things I, this, when I was reading about the scandal, you know, many years ago in college, not that many, but. <laughs> it was many years ago for me too. <laughs> um, I just remember thinking like, oh, this is the scandal because I think we are so used to hearing, this is not a political statement at all, but we are so used to hearing about politicians cheating on their wives or accepting bribes. Um, so to us, it's like, okay, but back then that, that was unheard of. And at least not on this scale. And so the Teapot Dome scandal is considered one of the greatest instances of political corruption um, and shifted the way political scandals were viewed and became a landmark case of political deceit that was a reference point for scandals that followed, like Watergate. Yes. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy to me. Yes. I love all of that because you are completely right and it saddens me. 
that this is one of those events in history that doesn't get the attention it deserves because for one, it was a huge deal. And two, it has so much relevance and ties so in line with today's society. What is it about the Teapot Jones scandal that like you were so obsessed with? Kelly, this is a question for Kelly. Is it just because it was so like uh, so many different facets, different arms, different things going on? Yeah, I think honestly, like reading this book, it reads like a novel, like some crazy drama that I'm like, is this, did this really happen? Because even if we've talked about it, I don't even think that like, it's just so intricate and there's so much, it's just fascinating. It's like such a, hating a good story because it was suppression. But it, it, it's just so interesting. And the tie to USC, it's like I just suddenly felt this instant, like, you know, it's my scandal. Because like, I had to claim it. Like, you know yeah. what? This is the historical, this is my drunk history moment of this is what I would talk about. Because it's, it's so cool. And like Leo or Rachel was saying that it, there is still relevance today. And it's still an important um, moment in American history that I think is forgotten. And um, I just... Yeah, I love it. That's one of those things. Yeah. As a person, as one of the people that hadn't heard of it from an outsider, I have to say it definitely reads like a soap opera. For sure. Oh, yeah. I'm like, what? She did what? What did she do? (laughs) 100%. What I love about history, my favorite thing about history is that we're studying human beings. And so when I read about stories like this, it just has so much relevance to today. Like we talked about earlier, you can understand like, okay, he took a bribe. He was faced with $400,000. What would you do? Like, can, can you claim that you're such an angel and you wouldn't accept a bribe like that? That's why I love history so much is we, I think a lot of times when you're reading it in a textbook, you separate that these were like real people that have real emotions that went through real things. And that's one of my favorite things about the teapot dome scandal is everyone in the story. You can almost see the two sides to all of it. And it's just so human. For sure. Well, that's the, the beauty of history is that history is written after the fact. Yeah. So we're able to discuss it now from our perspective in 2019. Mm-hmm. But at the time, you know, it goes back to like, in the time, what would you have done? Like, what would you have done? Yeah. You never, you never know. It's like you put yourself, in you put shoes. yourself in their shoes. Like it's so, it's just so interesting. That's, that's why I love history. Cause you can, you look at it from that person. You're trying to understand it from that perspective yeah. only with your perspective now. Yeah. And it's just kind of how to bridge the two and how does that come together? Yeah. yeah. Perspective is hindsight or that's the phrase, right? Hind- what is hindsight? Hindsight is 2020. Hindsight is 2020. Is it hindsight 2020? Yeah. Yeah. Hindsight is 2020. What's the phrase about perspective? I don't know. I don't know. I always like the perspective is. I don't know. I don't think I've heard of perspective. I always like the. Or you always know the play Monday that would have won the game Sunday. Yes. Oh, yeah. You know, I always like that one. Yes. Well, guys, that is all that we have for you. I can't believe this was our last episode of season one. We want to thank you all so much from the bottom of our hearts for tuning in this whole season and making this such a successful podcast. We love you guys. 
Yes, this has been amazing, but also a bit of a learning process for, I think, both of us. And so we're just really excited to keep on trucking and to make season two even better for you guys. So with that, thank you for sticking with us while we figure everything out and for being so supportive and so awesome. As always, we will have a link to our website in the show notes so you can see the pictures from this episode. We will also post the pictures to our Instagram. The link in the show notes to our website is also where you can go to see all of our sources that we use to put together this episode. And always be sure to subscribe to Hashtag History on whatever podcast platform you use, share it with a friend, and give us a rate and review. And we both want to give an extra thank you to Kelly for joining us this episode. Seriously, if you guys are in the greater Sacramento area, you have to check out Milk House Shakes. And I'm really excited because I think we have milkshakes in the freezer. They're just waiting. They're just waiting in the freezer, guys. Can we talk faster? I want to say thank you so much for having me. Like, seriously, this was so fun. I was, like, so nervous and so excited. I feel so honored. Like, I'm not... In college, I wanted to be a wedding planner and a um, history professor at the same time. Yeah, you know. Some Hubbard's I don't know how, but, you know. But the history professor part, I still want to be. So I feel like I'm not an expert by any stretch. And that's also why I love history. You don't have to be taught. You, you have, have to be taught how to learn. I mean, mm-hmm. who gets... Who really gets not? I mean, some people do. I shouldn't say that. But, like, that's hard. But, like, history? You just got to pick up a book. Yeah. It's the best. So thank you for having me. I love it. Of course. And did you want to share your Instagram? Oh, yes. Follow um, Milk House Shapes on Instagram, Facebook. We do have a Twitter. I don't really use it, but... Yeah. Instagram really is it. <laughs> and of course, be sure to check us out on Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast. You will definitely want to be following us on the gram. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> I can't believe Rachel just made me say that. <laughs> check us out on Instagram these next few weeks between seasons to stay up to date on everything we are doing. We have a couple cool things coming down the pipeline for sure. Thank you guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.